In the beginning, we were created and designed to live and walk with God. But humanity traded the truth for a lie. We traded the glory and goodness of God for the world and our own ways. Separated from God, we were stuck in a pit of our own making. But Jesus broke through. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he rescued us from our sin, shame, and pain. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live a new life, full life, a life that is upside down compared to what we are used to. His upside down, or rather, right side up ways are beautiful and perfect. He empowers us to live his mission, turning this upside down world right side up for his kingdom, his power, and his glory. I recall a specific conversation I had with a friend of mine uh, at a gym that I used to work out at that uh, he, I'm not even sure he actually knew my name, even though we were friends, because the only thing he ever called me was pastor, pastor, pastor. It was always pastor. And it wasn't like in an endearing way. It was sometimes a bit of like an instigation type uh, situation where like if other guys in the gym, you could say, maybe started using colorful language, it would be, oh, guys, 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 pa pastor's here better watch out. As if like my job description as a pastor was to carry lightning bolts in my pocket to <laughs> zap people as some sort of like God ordained, like profanity police officer or something. I don't know. Uh, but my friend uh, who was a heterosexual man, we had mutual friends who self-identified as gay. And so one day I walk in and I'm going in and I, I, I haven't even got like my gym bag off of my shoulder yet. And it's, pastor, 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 pastor. Hey, tell me, where do you stand on the subject of homosexuality? And maybe you've gotten a question like that or some iteration thereof. And what I answered to him, uh, to his question, was, a question of my own, an important question, and that was, well, what do you mean by homosexuality? Because what I wasn't going to do was give a simplistic answer to what I and he and I both knew was not a simple subject. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been taking on uh, some tough topics. Uh, we looked at adultery and lust. We looked at divorce and remarriage. And today, as we look at the topic of homosexuality, I just want to kind of maybe put this out there, that if you have questions, if you have concerns as a result of the conversation today or really anything over the last three weeks, I just want to invite you to email me your questions at my personal email address, Jonathan Grunden. <laughs> at firstdecatur.org. I will answer every one of them. And so to the question, 
where do we stand? Because I'm not obviously representing just me here, but where do we stand when we say where we stand on anything when it comes to any tough topic, whether today, the last three weeks, or any tough topic that we will look at in the days ahead, that the response for our congregation is that we stand on the truth of God's Word, that God's Word is where we firmly plant our authority on all things, faith and practice, it says in our, uh, even our statement of beliefs, because that's where we understand everything else to come out of. And over, over the last three weeks, we've said that we need to firm ourselves on, we said, are these uh, three pillars, three of those truths from the truth of God's Word that have, you could say, a firm foundation for which to build all these conversations from. That, number one, we recognize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Because, Romans 2, we are reminded that it's God's kindness, his goodness to us, that leads us to repentance. Repentance meaning to change our mind because of a conviction of heart, believing that his ways are best. That the life that he has given us is life and life to the full, John 10.10, 10, that the one who gave us life actually has the best way for us to live out that life in him. And so building on these truths, when it comes to the question, or, or more accurately, we could say the questions, plural, regarding homosexuality, there is obviously no way that we can cover everything that any one of us could mean by homosexuality today. And I want you to know that there are further resources to continue that conversation at the website associated with this sermon series, thebestsermonever.com. But I would say our goal for today is to at least, as we begin the conversation, to, you could say, get us headed in the right direction. That from the, the start, the trajectory, that we are headed in the right direction together. That really to the question, rather than, hey, pastor, 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 what we want to ask is, Jesus, like we might even ask him, Jesus, well, how would you answer it? Where do you stand on homosexuality? And more specifically, how does Jesus respond to this in the context of our series together? This best sermon ever, all based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because perhaps maybe you have been wondering how we are going to address this from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you're familiar with it at all, maybe you've been kind of scouring it, wondering, where is this particular subject? Because I can't seem to actually find it in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you've gone outside of that and looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, these biographies of Jesus and his words, and you still, you do not see this topic. You don't see Jesus addressing the conversation about homosexuality anywhere in what he has to say. And you would be correct. You would be correct that Jesus actually never uses or even uh, suggests the phrase that includes or anything like what we would call or identify as homosexuality. However, interestingly, what we will discover actually is that Jesus, he does address the subject of homosexuality, not once, but actually twice in the Sermon on the Mount. And so today, that's what I want to invite you to discover, the two places that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount answers this question. Jesus, where do you stand on the subject of homosexuality? And the first teaching, the first place that we see this from Jesus is actually 
in what we have looked at over the last two weeks. And that as Jesus, he addresses these, you've heard it said. You've heard it said regarding lust and adultery and divorce and remarriage. Or you could say, Jesus said, you've heard it said regarding the sexual ethic of the day. That it has been turned upside down and Jesus says, but I say to you, like this correction to turn the upside down sexual ethic of his day right side up. And so in each of these two teachings over the last two weeks that we've examined from Jesus regarding adultery and lust and divorce and remarriage, we could see that Jesus in his day brought understanding to a misunderstood ethic on sexuality. That that's what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He was bringing clarity where there was confusion. He was bringing understanding where there was misunderstanding on the ethic of sexuality for their day. And so given this, I think it's reasonable, and maybe even more so our responsibility, that we too, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, respond to the sexual ethic subject of our day, of which... I don't think anyone in the room would argue that the number one conversation that is taking place in our day regarding sexual ethic would be the conversation around LGBTQIA+, which is an acronym that represents these particular understandings, these orientations or identifiers, such as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual. And so in the same way that Jesus was asked to respond to the varying and opposing views of the sexual ethic question of his day, which we see in Matthew 19, he asked, or he was asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We bring the sexual ethic question of homosexuality to Jesus that is the question of our day. And so as we do that, as previously mentioned, again, not trying to fool anyone, Jesus does not directly get asked this, nor does Jesus directly respond to this. But following the pattern of Jesus, uh, you could say that if we could imagine if he were asked this question, you know, Jesus, where do you stand on this subject? That we could imagine that he would might have done what he did in lots of other settings, that when he was asked uh, to give a simplistic answer to a complex question, you'll notice that Jesus, he rarely, you could say, takes the bait. He rarely takes the bait to satisfy the presuppositions of either side's extreme on a particular subject, and often does this by pointing out to his audience that they're actually starting with the wrong question. And so Jesus, to the question, where do you stand on homosexuality, we don't know for sure, but we could suspect that maybe he would have started with responding to, you're asking the wrong question. Question. And while the question of homosexuality is, you could say, different, obviously, than the question of divorce, obviously, we do see in Jesus and in the scriptures that the starting place for the answer to both questions is actually the same. And that is namely how God designed us from the beginning. Which Jesus, quoting the New Testament, or excuse me, Jesus in the New Testament is quoting back to the beginning of Genesis, of creation itself. In response to divorce, he says it this way, but this is, again, a question with an answer that gets us started in the right trajectory. Jesus says this, quoting from the beginning, haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. 
and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so what we notice here is that Jesus does not say that two people should become one flesh, but explicitly says male and female. And so as I say that, you might be saying, um, well, pastor, that sure does seem like a convenient workaround. A convenient workaround to, one, take head on the subject that Jesus doesn't even directly address by name in the Sermon on the Mount, let alone anywhere else in his teachings. And then secondly, furthermore, to make an argument make using Jesus' teaching clear that it, clearly that was a response to divorce, to then unquestionably conclude that because the first model of marriage was between a male and a female, that this automatically rules out same-sex unions. And if that's your thought, I would say I would agree. I would agree. I would like some more evidence beyond what we might call like a reductionistic logic that says, hey, just because the first marriage union was heterosexual, does this automatically disallow homosexual unions like for all time moving forward? And then with that, even frustratingly, frustratingly still, you might just ask the question that I might have of Jesus, like, hey, given that this is such a huge subject, that this is such a significant topic in our country, in politics, in the world, in the church, uh, but not just something like out there somewhere. Like it's a personal conversation of something and things and conversations that are happening in my family, with friends I work with, close friends of mine, maybe even with you as maybe you wrestle within you this particular conversation. And so given all this, we might just ask, okay, Jesus, why don't you or why didn't you address the subject directly? Well, there's two possible conclusions uh, as to why Jesus did not directly address the subject of homosexuality. The first one, some have uh, concluded that Jesus must have, or at least could have, been fine with same-sex relationships because he never addressed it. But this would be a bad assumption. See, we must recognize that there were other subjects that Jesus does not mention or teach on directly regarding sexual ethics that were clearly addressed in other parts of Scripture. For example, Jesus does not speak directly to the subject of rape or incest, but to interpret that Jesus would have been fine with those things would clearly be incorrect. Or the second possible conclusion, that the reason Jesus doesn't address the subject of homosexuality and same-sex relations is that in the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, no one was asking. You see, most of the people that Jesus would have spoken with and taught, they were Jews. They were Jewish, and they shared the same conclusion regarding same-sex relations as sin. And so with that, you might say, okay, where does the scriptures, where do the Jewish people of the day and Jesus, who was Jewish, where do the scriptures that Jesus in his own words in the Sermon on the Mount came not to abolish, but to fulfill that, where does he speak or where does this understanding regarding homosexuality come into play that was so clear 
that people weren't asking about same-sex relations, that in turn Jesus wasn't overtly addressing. Well, a couple of those places in the Old Testament in the scriptures that Jesus and the people of their day would have had uh, would be a Leviticus 18.22, which says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. This is detestable. And Leviticus 20.13, that if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, I think it's reasonable to conclude to conclude that the reason that Jesus doesn't say, you know, hey, you've heard it said, you know, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, uh, and then follow it up with a, but I say to you, is that the question was not being asked in that day as it is in ours. And that the reason that Jesus never mentioned same-sex relations is that simply he didn't need to. He didn't need to because no one in his day was asking. Now, another response. Another response to quoting the law of the Old Testament. And you could say, how do we reconcile the old covenant laws that have been fulfilled in Jesus versus the ones that we are still called to uphold? And while time does not allow us to answer that question fully, the quickest test to ask, is the Old Testament law under the old covenant, is to discover, is it repeated and reaffirmed in the New Testament, under the new covenant, under Jesus? And so more specifically, we might just ask the question, okay, does the New Testament under the new covenant in Jesus, does it address this subject of same-sex relations? And the answer is yes. Yes. Actually, in a few places, we see it in 1 Corinthians 6, we see it in 1 Timothy 1, as well as, and this is the passage we'll look at today, Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he is writing a letter to the church at Rome uh, with, with Paul, who unlike Jesus, Jesus, his primary audience was Jewish, Paul's primary audience was, you could say, secular or Gentile or non-Jewish. And so Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing to us all what happens when any of us turn our back on God's ways in pursuit of our own way or the world's ways. And some of that says it this way. Apostle Paul says, because of this, God has given them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women, excuse me, even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so we see in Romans 1 what would be the clearest statement about same-sex relations in the Bible. Identifying same-sex relations, it says, as not natural. As in not naturally the way that God created it and designed sex from the beginning. Now, this takes me back to the question of my friend at the gym. When it comes to, pastor, pastor, where, where do you stand on homosexuality. To which, if you recall, I asked the question back to him, well, what do you mean by homosexuality? In that, if by gay or homosexual you mean same-sex sexual relations, then yes. 
the scriptures are clear. This is sin. But if by gay or homosexual you mean feeling attractions towards someone of the same sex but does not act on that attraction, then we would say no. This is not a sin. A a temptation, perhaps, but not a sin. Any more than if a heterosexual person might be attracted to someone of the opposite sex who is not their spouse and acting on that, as Jesus said, whether physically or with lustful intent would be adultery, as we looked at two weeks ago, and thus also then would be sin. Now, I suggested uh, that Jesus addresses the subject of homosexuality in the Sermon on the Mount, not once, but twice. And that first, in his addressing of the sexual ethic of the day, uh, we are addressing the sexual ethic questions of our day. But I invite you to see the second place where Jesus addresses the subject of homosexuality in the Sermon on the Mount, and not by addressing actually our sexual ethic, but you could say our one another ethic. How we treat one another, namely, to one another struggle with sin as compared to each of our own. A little later, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words. Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse one. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure that you see, and excuse me, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, as I read this and the words of Jesus, please hear what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus is not suggesting that we not be discerning or to not use wise judgment when it comes to identifying what is sin and what isn't sin. And that sometimes I think this statement, like, who am I to judge, is often misused in a way to say, Who am I to say what is truth? Who am I to say what is sin or what is not sin for one person versus another, as if it's a relative reality? But this is not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying here is uh, the word for judge is the Greek word krino. And in this context means to condemn or to judge harshly. To condemn or judge harshly is what he means by judge. That's clearly what Jesus' illustration about the plank in our own eye. What Jesus is warning about is our temptation to move to judge and to condemn others ahead of recognizing the sin in our own life. And I would contend that the church, by and large, in recent history has risked overemphasizing homosexual sin at the minimization of other sin, and in particular, heterosexual sexual sin. 
Pastor Erwin Lutzer, uh, retired pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago. Uh, he says this, and I agree. Until we, as the evangelical church, are willing to talk about heterosexual sin, such as adultery, cohabitation, etc., we forfeit the right to talk about homosexual sin. And I would absolutely agree. And that honestly, that's why we have been very intentional in the order in which we have placed the topics of the last three weeks. And so when it comes to all people and all of our sin, I want us to look again at Romans chapter one, at just a few verses that follow what we just read a few moments ago regarding same-sex relations and what Romans has to say about all people who have turned from God's ways and gone our own way. Goes on, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Now, did any of your sins, past or present, make the list? Yeah, mine too. You see, Paul, a couple of chapters later in Romans, he reminds us that, hey, there is no one righteous, not even one. Because, Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, that's like the whole point of the first three chapters of Romans, to point out that we have all missed the mark, that we have all sinned, that we've all fallen short, and that's why we all, gay and straight, need Jesus. And then going back to Romans chapter one, where Paul says, very specifically, same-sex relations are not natural, which, as we pointed out, it goes against God's natural design between one man and one woman in the context of covenant marriage. Notice what Paul does not say. He is not saying that gay people are not natural or that they are detestable or that they are abominations or creepy or weird because just as true as at the beginning, the way that God created us, we also see in Genesis chapter one that the way in which we were created is that we were all, each and every one of us, created in the image and the likeness of God. Psalm 139 speaks to this truth saying, for you, O God, you created our inmost being, that you knit each and every one of us together in our mother's womb, and so we praise you because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and we need to know that full well. You see, all of us, each and every one of us are uh, the imago Dei, that Latin phrase that means image bearers of God, which means that no person should ever be made to feel like they are anything less. Because yes, we have all gone astray from God's original natural design for the creation of things through various sins, some of which are identified in Romans chapter one as we just looked at. But you and I both know 
that that list is far from exhaustive. And so I want to share with you um, true story, the actual experience of a young man. Uh, we'll use the name Jordan. True story. Jordan, he remembers the day like it was yesterday, anxiously waiting in his car outside the building of his home church, trembling, palms dripping with sweat, not wanting to go into the meeting that he called with the church leadership, but he knew he had to. You see, Jordan had recently come to grips with the fact that he was attracted to guys. And he'd even mustered up the courage to tell his pastor and the church leadership team. Jordan, he had spent several years wrestling with his same-sex attraction. Though, his commitment to God's word and believing God's best for him prevented him from acting on it. He had never even so much as touched another guy romantically. But no one at his church knew about his struggle. When Jordan entered the room, he was greeted with smiles, palms still dripping with sweat. He decided to get it over with, saying, I know you all know me and trust me and allow me to serve in the church. So I wanted to let you know that, I mean, I, I want to confess that, well, I'm sort of, I'm struggling with same-sex attractions. I'm, I'm attracted to guys. Silence. I thought he was a Christian, one leader said to another, forgetting that Jordan was in the room uh, just a few feet away with ears that still worked. Jordan, when did you decide this? Uh, when? What, what do you mean? I, I didn't decide this. I, I don't want to be attracted to guys. The leader continued, you know, Jordan, what God says about homosexuals, the Bible says that they are an abomination. Jordan was taken aback. He didn't even know what to say. The, the line between homosexual practice and struggling with same-sex attraction was becoming painfully blurred before him. Jordan, we cannot condone someone with your lifestyle. Another leader interjected with polished conviction. Lifestyle, Jordan thought to himself. Like, I haven't even touched another person. I'm probably more pure than any other guy my age. Lifestyle? As Jordan sat through the rest of the rather brief meeting, confusion continued to dehumanize him as he felt his humanity slipping away. The last thing Jordan remembers from that night is heading to his car, locking the door, squeezing the steering wheel until his knuckles turned white and screaming away his pain. It rips my heart out the way that the truth of Bible verses on the subject of homosexual sin have been misused toward gay people. 
It's distressing to me that Bible verses that speak on homosexuality have been come to known as, they've been known as clobber passages. So that these select verses that hammer down hard on what the Bible has to say about homosexuality at the absence of what the Bible has to say and hammer down when it comes to God's grace and forgiveness that is available to us all because of all of our sin. John 1.14. Jesus came full of grace and truth. That this is the complete mission of Jesus. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some encounters that Jesus had with uh, a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and a, a woman at a well um, who had a difficult story in John chapter 4. And in each of those cases, the only thing they got clobbered with was God's kindness that leads to repentance, that there is no condemnation in Christ that they would discover a new life, life and life to the full in Christ. You see, it's something we need to pay attention to, that in our practice, that as the church, that when it comes to, you could say, subjects that we call theological and ones that we dismiss as something different, that in, we would all agree, that the subject of human sexuality is absolutely a God-ordained theological subject, meaning what we believe about God and sexuality absolutely matters. But to suggest that the way that we treat someone is something secondary to what we believe about something is to miss that everything is theological. In fact, Arguably, the two greatest theological statements within all the Bible have everything to do with how we treat God and one another. It's about relationship. Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked, what are the two greatest commandments of all? They are how you treat God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that this is the first and greatest commandment. And out of the love for him and understanding his great love and grace and mercy for us, we then out of the overflow are able to live that second that is just like it, to love your neighbor, to love one another, to love others just as we would want to be loved ourselves, that all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, the way that we treat one another, it is not secondary to what we believe, that how we treat one another, it is what we believe. And so today, if after hearing Jordan's story, if you would say, I'm Jordan, I'm Jordan, like maybe you are still standing on the outside of the church trying to decide if this is a safe place to walk in and share where you are wrestling with L or G or B or T or Q or I or A or plus. Or maybe you're here today and you're on the other side of Jordan's story. You, you took the, you shared with a loved one, with a family member, with a friend, with the church, and it did not go well. I am just so encouraged and so 
I don't think proud of you is the right word, but just overwhelmed um, by the courage that you have to even walk into the room. Because even though it didn't go well with someone you love and trusted, you have not given up on the possibility that there is a God who loves you and who can be trusted with all of your wrestlings. And so please hear. I am not up here today to preach a sermon at you. I am here to tell you that I love you, this church loves you, that God loves you, and that if you are wrestling, do not wrestle alone. That we are here for you, and in all seriousness, do email me. My email is brian at firstdecatur.org. Do not wrestle alone. Do not go through this by yourself. And know this, that even if you have acted on those wrestlings, even if you have, there is still forgiveness in Christ alone, that just like there is for all of us in all of our sin, because this is now a sermon for us all, does not forget that is because of God's great love for us, that he proved to us that why we were all yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Because ultimately, if you are in Christ Jesus, then none of us are defined by our sins. We are not defined by our struggles because, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here because, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who came, John 1.14, full of grace and full of truth, that it is his kindness that leads to our repentance, our turning to him to, to turn and discover that his life that he has given to us is the best life that he has designed for us to live in him and in his ways. And that is a message for all of us. And so with that, let's pray for this reality to be lived in, in our lives and in our church and through our church. Would you pray with me? Father, your truth, we are thankful, is full of grace. That your grace is truth and your truth is grace. They are not at odds. That in love, we recognize that in your perfection and your goodness that we have fallen short of that, every single one of us. But thanks be to you, O oh God, that while we were yet still sinners, choosing our own way, you chose to make a way by sending your one and only son, that whoever believes in him, is baptized into him, is forgiven, given the gift of a new life, both in this life and for all of eternity. So, Father, we thank you. May we live in this new life or step into this day, that new life, by the gift of your work within our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.